The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. It is a real honor to be with you. Uh, I love visiting the churches where our Beeson grads and uh, brothers and sisters in Christ that I've known in the community attend and worship. Uh, and just by meeting uh, just by meeting you walking in the door and meeting Sanford grads and Beeson students and uh, Brad and Jonathan, whom I've known for years, I feel already very much at home and comfortable here to uh, share the word with you. It's really encouraging uh, to go from church to church within this Birmingham community and find just a vitality in Jesus Christ, a desire to serve. I sometimes wonder what the combined impact of the wisdom of the church is in the life of this city. Because your lives from day to day, week to week, touch so many industries and neighborhoods and communities and families. It certainly is, uh, you know, I was talking to my wife on the way over, a businessman, Joe Ziegler, uh, from our church, the Church of the Advent, was, uh, I had lunch with him. He's in his 80s now, long retired, but he said that there was a, a mentor of his who gave him some really valuable information that has always stayed with him, sort of four levels of learning. He said most people start off with sort of unconscious ignorance. They're not aware of how ignorant they are. Um, I have a colleague by the name of Alan Ross that says the whole purpose of seminary is just to turn you from unconscious ignorance to conscious ignorance. But the second level of education then is conscious ignorance, understanding that there's so much you don't know. But then the third level is conscious competence, where you begin to know your field, your area, and you feel comfortable in it, you feel competent. You may be a teacher, you may be doing business, you may be a software analyst, whatever. You begin, you begin to feel at home in your area. And then the fourth level is unconscious competence. You really are at home. So much at home that you really don't need to kind of think about it all the time. There's a sense of being at peace with what you know. Um, and you know, it's hard to sort of be surprised or shocked. You're just at home in that field. Well, in thinking about this beautiful, powerful chapter, Proverbs 8, what it be like to really be imbued with the wisdom of God, to know this wisdom, to love the wisdom, to have it sort of pervade your relationships, to have it control your thinking, uh, to shape your reactions, your immediate reactions. Uh, that I mean, and I think that that's what we all in Christ are aiming for. And if you sit here not knowing Christ, I think the most compelling and encouraging and beautiful expression of the gospel is when you're around Christians who really have the wisdom of God. 
And of course, that wisdom is going to play itself out in humility, in a kind of an aesthetic. It certainly isn't going to play itself out in a kind of know-it-all attitude. There's going to be a way that listening becomes awfully important to those who have the wisdom of God. They will want to exegete people in the right way, in an honest way, as much as any kind of text. If you had to pick a verse for the book of Proverbs that summed up the book, I think that's probably, probably 90% of you would get this one after having listened to the, the three uh, previous Proverbs uh, sermons. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But fools despise wisdom and discipline. You've got it just in that first phrase. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Everything else in the Proverbs depends upon that line. The fear of the Lord. And Bruce Waltke, an Old Testament scholar, tells us that that expression, the fear of the Lord, is a bound phrase. So you almost want to think of it in terms of hyphen, fear of the Lord. You can't separate that out. Look, look at the words in the dictionary. It has its own unique meaning. In that phrase is the loyalty and love and faithfulness and humility of relating to God as his creature and as a person redeemed by his grace. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The French Christian, Blas Pascal, had an experience with the Lord in 1654, and he already had made his mark as a mathematician, as a physicist, as an inventor, as a writer. He already had set a mark for scientific endeavors, uh, had invented the mechanical calculator, had created two major areas of research in geometry and probability theory, and then he really met Jesus. He remained a, an educator and a mathematician, but in his pensies he writes, true fear comes from faith. False fear comes from doubt. True fear is joined to hope because it is born of faith and because men and women hope in the God in whom they believe. False fear is born of despair because people fear the God in whom they have no belief. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I think for all of us, when God takes the initiative to make himself known to us, as he is doing, there is a reaction to that. And I think that reaction is fairly predictable and fairly understandable. It is, woe is me for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst the people of unclean lips. I don't think you can avoid that initiating step, that when God's wisdom really impacts you, you understand, we understand, our sinfulness and our need for redemption. And in a way, we're going to get to the Lord's table and I'm a big believer the text takes us to the table all the time. I'm beginning with that. 
I'm beginning with the wisdom of God begins with a realization of my great need for his mercy and his grace. And that's the first step of wisdom, to acknowledge my need and to revel in the grace of God. Remember when Peter was confronted, encountered by the Lord, by the Lord's greatness, by Jesus' greatness, and he dropped to his knees and said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Uh, last week, my wife and I were in Denver for the General Assembly of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, and it was held at a church that I served for a few years. And we went back, and Andrew Brunson, and I know he also spoke at the Southern Baptist Convention here in Birmingham beforehand, but Andrew Brunson was in prison for two years uh, in Turkey. For much of that time, he thought it might be for 30 years. He was accused of being a CIA operative, and for 26 years, uh, Andrew and Noreen Brunson had been church planters in Turkey, raising up small households of faith with a very credi credible witness. But he fell apart in prison. They were both arrested and both in prison for 13 days, he and his wife, and then after 13 days, Noreen was released, but then Andrew, uh, was not, and he was charged with all of this espionage and CIA stuff that had been all trumped up and uh, confronted with false witnesses in the courtroom, and as time went on, he became more and more distraught and despairing and anxious, kind of the opposite of what he thought he would be, not in any way heroic in the faith to the point where he had become suicidal. He could not imagine a life apart from his family and a life in a Turkish prison. And he went all the way down in this despair. And you know what, when he hit bottom, his thought was, I've got to learn how to fear God than fear man. And that became the starting point for the arc turning upwards. That which was worse, to be confronted by all this human depravity and human um, anger and uh, false accusation, or to stand before God and believe that you had let God down. That somehow the grace and mercy that God had showered on you had been rejected and spurned. And he said, that was the turning point for me for the Lord to start rebuilding me. And he said, it took another year in prison to really be rebuilt the way the Lord wanted him to. This pursuit of wisdom and how you go about it, how you long for it, how you put yourself to the task of being open to the wisdom of God, I think it begins with the fear of the Lord. It begins with a realization of what God in Christ has given to us. It is a desire to be able to be present before Almighty God in his holiness and his justice and be received by the grace of God.
it's interesting, isn't it? I think that the wisdom literature on the Psalms, the Proverbs, Job, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, that exists at the center of our Bible, at the center of our canon, of what the church has, by God's spirit, designed as being the authoritative word of God. I find it interesting that if we put the Psalms as the magnetic center of the canon, as important in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament, and then around that, you have certain polarities. You've got Job, which is a description of acute suffering. And that is in a polarity to Proverbs, where Proverbs just is sort of describing life as ordinary. It's just what's going on. And how do we cope in relationship with others? And God gives us wisdom and advice on, on our communication, on our relationships, on just everything that's in Proverbs. But then you have the Song of Songs where the person's just passionately, ecstatically in love. And that's in a polarity with Ecclesiastes, where the person is so frustrated with the futility of life. It's just sort of a, the Psalms in the center, Job and Proverbs intention, and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Songs intention. And you take all five together in giving us a wisdom picture, the wisdom of God, so life-related. You know it's not tested by IQ. You know it's not tested by years in school. It is tested by life. And in a way, then, it includes all of us. Whether you see yourself as an academic or a bricklayer, that wisdom of God applies to one just as much as to another. And I think, isn't that part of the beauty of wisdom? Nobody can sort of say, well, I'm not smart enough for that. Because that excuse just doesn't work. <laughs> and that's why you can find the wisdom of God in an 85-year-old woman who has devoted her life to prayer and to her family. And that is beautiful. As a pastor, I have always found myself learning from people in their 80s about what it really means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I probably learn more from people in the church than I do from theologians about the church. That's We've got to grasp that kind of beauty of the wisdom of God. And here, chapter 8 begins. Doesn't wisdom call out? does not understand you, raise your voice. And that wisdom's at the highest point. It's at the intersection of life. It is at the gate. Wisdom is there. It's there for the hearing. It's there for the taking. Wisdom is there. It's not shy. It's not hidden. If you don't want to grow, oh, I can get a little passionate about this, and I don't mean to be offsetting, but... I find a lot of Christians who, in dialogue about their life and the challenges about their life, will just sort of say, well, I'm a simple Christian. I just want a simple faith. And, and I haven't really learned how to be very convincing to them. Evil is really complex. 
Relationships are really complex. We live in a day and age where the ethical challenge is really complex. We need a faith that steps up and steps into the intellectual, emotional, relational challenges that we are confronted with. Man, we should be humbled by the challenge before us and not kiss it off and say, I just want a simple faith. I believe that the degree to which we strengthen and support our families requires us to engage in the wisdom of God, to hear that wisdom. Now, if you read chapter 7 before chapter 8, you realize that chapter 7 is a description of a woman. Both of these are descriptions of women, lady wisdom, and this foolish, seductive wisdom, or foolishness. Chapter 7, that description is in verse 10. Then, came, then out came a woman to meet him, to a guy dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. And she is unruly and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she lurched. She took hold of him and kissed him, and with a brazen face, she said, today I fulfilled my vows. Well, she's seducing him. And so you've got the voice of the anti-wisdom person seducing, intriguing, lurking in the shadows, trying to get to you, versus the openness, trustworthiness, honesty, of the wisdom of God. And these are set up as a contrast. Wisdom is appealing. It's open. It's open to the light. It's open to public scrutiny. God is not embarrassed with his wisdom. And everyone is included. Verse 6, listen, for I have a trust, trustworthy things to say. No, back up, verse 5. You who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, set your hearts on it. Verse 5 is significant, I think, because there are no qualifications for this wisdom. The appeal is to everyone, no matter where they are in this spectrum of growth and wisdom and spiritual growth. You who are simple, gain prudence. I wouldn't go so far as what Eugene Peterson says in the message. Listen, you idiots. Learn good sense. You blockheads, shape up. Because I don't really think the thought of the passage, much as I like the message, I don't think the thought of the passage is to put the person down as much as to appeal to them that nothing should stand in the way here. God's wisdom truly is desirous of reaching you and speaking to you. Oliver Wendell Holmes, a famous Supreme Court justice and philosopher, said, I won't give a fig for simplicity on this side of complexity, but I will give my life for the simplicity on the other side of complexity. And I believe really in the simple saint. The simple saint in the sense that no matter where she is, what she's doing, no matter how she's in that, in, interacting, 
It's solidly Christian. It's solidly for God. But I don't think in any ways the, the proverb puts people down. It raises people up. Please don't excuse yourself from wisdom's appeal. I think that's the thrust of it. So wisdom is accessible. It's open. And then the proverb writer, the poet launches into a description of how trustworthy it is, how it is filled with honesty and rightness, how it detests uh, wickedness. It makes me think of uh, Paul's prayer to the church at Philippi. This is my prayer, that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so you discern what is best and be filled with the fruit of righteousness until the day of Christ Jesus. That's a prayer for all of us, that love and knowledge would cohere in such a powerful way. But it often doesn't. And it doesn't, especially for people like myself who spend a lot of time in books. John Feinberg uh, wrote a book entitled Deceived by God, A Journey Through Suffering. And John had characterized his academic education by spending time on the problem of evil and suffering. He had done three theses, one for his bachelor's degree in biblical studies, another for his master's, his MDiv degree, and then for a master's theological education, and then finally a PhD, all in the area of trying to understand God and suffering. And then his wife, Patricia, was diagnosed with Huntington's disease, which is a brain deteriorating disease. And John just fell apart. He felt like he knew absolutely nothing for dealing with this. I mean, the irony of spending 20 years on this topic and then when it really hits home and his wife is diagnosed with a, a terminal disease, although Patricia is still alive, he's cared for her for some 20 plus years. And John just felt he had nothing. And he himself, like Andrew Brunson, felt that he had come just to the end of himself and he would have preferred to die. But Patricia, and this is interesting because he brings this out in the book really well. I don't think John really respected Patricia's theological understanding or biblical understanding. She had never studied like he had. And, and yet Patricia, through her own sense of spiritual formation, her own devotional life in the word, her own love of the Psalms kind of knew what to do. And she practiced that. It gave her courage. It gave her stability. It gave her strength. Of course, there's different dynamics, obviously. I mean, most of us, I think, would rather do the suffering than our spouse suffer. We'd actually find that easier to have the suffering ourselves and not our spouse. So there's those dynamics, I realize that, but it's just interesting how John and Patricia dealt with this differently. And Patricia, without the theological education, yet a real reliance upon and trust in the wisdom of God.
in verse 10, choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. This wisdom is open, it's accessible, you and I don't need to qualify for it, its credentials are there for everyone to see, and the choice really is ours. Choose. Choose. And you know, obviously that's going to be something of a function of time and personality and desire, isn't it? Where you pray for God's help to choose this wisdom. To become a part that this becomes part of your life, part of your study. There's a little book like, uh, entitled Life's Little Instruction Book. It's by Jackson Brown. It's sold as kind of in gift shops. 511 random one-liners. Like compliment three people every day. Or watch a sunrise once a year. Or remember other people's birthdays. Or you can't go wrong if you overtip the breakfast waitress. And there's 511 of these random sayings. And it may have even been written by a Christian because number 115 says, give yourself a year and read the Bible cover to cover. But I guess my concern is that life's little instruction book does not constitute wisdom for facing life. And little one-liners are not the way to measure how one has learned how to pray the Psalms, or whether or not you actually grasp something of the Sermon on the Mount, or you understand the dynamic of how the household of faith is described in the epistles, or that there is a sense of the majesty and holiness of God. These are the things that I think constitute wisdom. One-liners, they're fine, that's entertaining, but that's not what is going to constitute real discipleship. Now, this is a little bit more complicated, but bear with me. David Brooks is a writer for the New York Times, and he's just written a book entitled The Second Mountain. And people are wondering where he is in terms of his faith because he does seem to be on a journey. And my hope after reading The Second Mountain is that David Brooks has another book in him. And that other book in him will speak of his uh, commitment and understanding of Christ. David Brooks has made a wise point when he says that our society suffers from hyper-individualism. And from that hyper-individualism comes our loneliness, our isolation, our distrust, our tribalism, and the crisis of meaning. Brooks is just a wonderful wisdom advisor in the sense of kind of worldly wisdom, a moral order a sense of selflessness, a giving up of oneself for commitments to vocation, commitments to marriage, uh, commitments that are bigger than yourself. But the reason I bring him up 
is because it's kind of dangerous advice if all that is being said is you can be wise, you can be sensible, you can buy into the common grace that's part of our life. But God really calls you to understand that wisdom is embodied. Wisdom takes on a person. And wisdom can't ultimately be abstract and impersonal. God himself represents wisdom, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we read Proverbs 8, and there's a sense in which we tie it in to John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we tie it into, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld the glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That wisdom, it comes and comes to us in person. In the person of the living God, in person of the incarnate one. And that's what's so beautiful about Proverbs 8, because that personification, verse 22, the Lord brought me forth as the first of his works. Before his deeds of old, I was formed long ages ago. Speaks of wisdom as being right there, inseparable from God. That God and wisdom are so connected, and then that connection takes on the personal reality of the incarnate one, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And that's why the Apostle Paul speaks of Christ as being both the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's why he speaks to the church at Corinth about the difference between the foolishness that the world looks at the wisdom of God as foolishness because they can't grasp the embodiment, the personhood of the wisdom of God. The conclusion of this chapter is in verse 32. Now then, my children, listen to me. So he's made a case for the appeal of wisdom, for the unqualified to, to receive this wisdom. He's made a case for the wisdom's character, being trustworthy and honest, forthright, not deceived by wickedness. And then he concludes, after having made this correlation between wisdom and God being so close, now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways, listen to my instruction, and be wise. Don't disregard it. Blessed are those who listen to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. For those who find me find life. For those who find me find life that this really is the key for human flourishing. This is the key for beautiful relationships. This is the key for having courage in the midst of suffering. For those who find me find life and receive favor from the Lord. And then this zinger of a conclusion. But those who fail to find me harm themselves. All who hate me love death. But those who fail to
define me, harm themselves. And all who hate me love death. We live in a culture with a stripped-down ontology. We have lived for a long time in a culture that centers on the self and really lives to ignore the creator and ignore the redeemer. We live in a culture that has, uh, and I think has, has put the, not only, not only do we understand that salvation is by grace through faith and that salvation is a gift, but I think in the light of your study in Proverbs, it's important to realize not only is salvation a gift, but significance and meaning is a gift. And so many people today are feeling the burden of having to define their own meaning and create meaning for themselves. And we were never meant to feel that burden. We were never meant to create our own meaning and our own significance. We receive significance as a gift, just like we receive salvation as a gift. And to make oneself one's own God, creating meaning and saving oneself is, is just what is the antithesis to the wisdom of God. You know, there was three notable suicides a while back, Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade, and then one nobody remembers, Richard Russell. Richard Russell uh, stole an Alaskan Airlines flight and uh, played with it for a while and flew it into the ground. And the only message he left was seemingly, that, the only message he left was that he was just a broken guy with a few loose screws. He was much loved, had many friends, seemed to be really happy at work. Anthony Bourdain seemed to be at the top of his professional life. Same with Kate Spade. I have tended to think of them as metaphysical suicides in the sense that the lack of understanding of what the world is all about and who they are and where their place is drove them to end their life. Bourdain disabused followers, his followers of any deeper transcendent meaning. He relished the line, your body's not a temple, it's an amusement park. Enjoy the ride. Friedrich Nietzsche, the late 19th century philosopher, wrote, God is dead, God remains dead, and we've killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? I think we are feeling the burden of coming up with our own meaning and our own significance. And God would say, and God would take away that burden. God is the one who gives us significance. God is the one who's made us in his image. God is the one who has gifted us. God is the one who has set us up for life, for human flourishing. 
and he gives us his wisdom. And so there ought to be a real hunger in all of us in Christ to pursue that wisdom. And if one is outside of Christ, to understand that the word indeed was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. To be independent, to be independent from the Lord of the universe and the hope of the world is not freedom, but bondage. To construct our understanding of meaning, to design our commitments, to orchestrate our relationships independent of Christ, who is the power of God and the wisdom of God, results in bondage, not freedom. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the gift of your wisdom and for making it so accessible to us in the incarnate one and in this life. Please give us a hunger to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, a hunger after this wisdom. We ask for your help in this. We ask it in the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.